1: This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media. Thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation to Visionathon today at vision.org.au. Today with Jeff Vines, author, pastor, apologist and Bible teacher with a straight-talking message from the Word.
0: This is the problem that we have with the Lord's Prayer. You've heard it so often that it doesn't pack the punch that it should pack.
1: Today with Jeff Vines. Hello and welcome. This is Today with Jeff Vines. Last time on the show, we started a new series, Here As In Heaven. It's a look into the Lord's Prayer. And in this episode, we'll continue with the rest of Pastor Jeff's message from Matthew chapter 6. It's Jesus' way of teaching us not only how to pray, but also how we can relate to God. Let's hear from Pastor Jeff now. This is Today with Jeff Vines.
0: Now, how many of you want to think, wow, your will be done. Do you know how intimidating that is to say that to God? How many of you want to say, "Uh, can we push the pause button right here just a moment, God? Before your will's done in my life, can we talk about what your will is? Can we talk about what you're allowed to come into my life? Can I have a say in this, God, if you don't mind? Come on, we're all like that. Once again, that's why Jesus says when you pray, if you don't begin with our Father who art in heaven our father, the closeness of God and his vantage point. You'll never make it because the reason we're instructed to pray your will be done is to remind ourselves that we're not smart enough, strong enough, wise enough, or present enough to run the universe. (laughs) We're just not clever. You know, when I was a young boy, how many of you guys that are into cars? Do you remember the 1975 Chevy Impala? Any of you remember that car? That's the car that I learned to drive on. It had uh, four but it wasn't in the floor. It was upon the drive. Uh, and so I learned to drive on that car. I had the clutch and everything. And my mom would allow me to drive in our yard to practice. Okay, But she gave me a warning. I'll do this with you anytime you want, but never get the keys and do it on your own without me in the car. Well, as soon as you tell a kid that, what are they going to do? As soon as you're gone, they're in the car. And uh, I got in the car and I started to drive and it wasn't very long until I recognized why it is that my mother, my mom told me, don't drive the car when I'm not here because there's still some things I don't know. And there's also some pretty dangerous stuff even in the yard that I didn't know about. I ended up getting the car about two inches from the gas lines. And uh, my mom just happened to come home at that time and she got in the car and she was revving the engine, trying to let out the clutch at the precise moment so the car would not back up and the house would explode. And she was so angry with me. And I look back at that example numerous times and I always ask myself, you know, if if there's that much difference between me and my mom and things I don't know, what's the difference between me and God? And spiritually speaking, we're just like that. Rather than respecting the creator-creature relationship, we want to run the universe and primarily our own lives. What we don't realize is that this is exactly the thing that's killing us. (laughs) That's why God says, when you pray, no, I'm your father. And I'm in heaven. I'm closer than the air you breathe. And I'm in charge of the universe. My will is going to be done on the earth as it is in heaven. Let me run the universe. You're not wired to run the universe. And basically what God is saying in this prayer, this this is the only thing that's going to give you rest for your soul. You with me? So adoration. And then there's an acceptance. In 2 Samuel, there's an amazing passage of scripture that illustrates this better than any other story I know. King David. He's sitting on a mule and he's riding out of town. He's looking back over a lifetime of trying to manipulate God. Can I just ask you quickly? Do you ever try to manipulate God? Maybe not. I think we do it more subconsciously than consciously. There's a part of us that says, you know, God, I've been really good this week and I deserve a little help here. Did you see me resist that temptation over there? Did you see what I did, God? Now, well, come on. So David is looking over a lifetime of of manipulating God. Before Bathsheba, David walked and waited on God. He let God control everything. He was even in a cave one time when King Saul was trying to kill him. King Saul went into the cave, didn't know David was there. David could have easily taken his life and become the king. What does he say? No. I'm not going to do it this way. I'm not going to touch the anointed of God. When God wants me to be king, I'll be king. But he did, I notice, in his humanity, cut off a little of Saul's garment and send it to him airmail. By the way, I was in a cave I could have killed you. But he didn't. And then suddenly something happened after Bathsheba. David started taking control of his own life. He wanted to dictate everything. He became narcissistic. He said, "You know, I want more women. Why anybody would want more than one woman? I have no idea." He became narcissistic. He began to take selfies of himself every five minutes. He was entitled. He said, bring me Uriah's wife. He even knew it was Uriah's wife. And then he starts to manipulate his family. And the more he tried to manipulate his family, the more he lost his family. So now we come to a time when his own son is trying to usurp and take over the throne. His own children hate him. David is riding out of town trying to escape all of this. And then something amazing happens in 2 Samuel 15. In verse 23, the whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved on toward the wilderness. Zadok was there too and all the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant to God. They set down the Ark of God and Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Then the king said to Zadok, take the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. Wow. You see what David just did? You know what the Ark is, right? You saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, correct? (laughs) The Ark is where God lives, man. You don't touch it. You don't look at it. You don't open it. Because God's presence is believed to be in and around that box. And if you read the Old Testament, whoever had the box, whoever was in possession of the box, they always won. One time, the Philistines got hold of the box and they started winning. Somehow the presence of God resided in this thing. Can I just pause again? man, I wish I had a box like that. Don't you? (laughs) You know, you're driving on the 210 and somebody cuts you off. Wouldn't you just like to roll down the window? Here, have a box. You know? Or when the the Giants come to town against the Dodgers, I'd love to have the box and just put it in Dodger dugout. Or when a cop pulls you over and wants to give you a speeding ticket, look into my box. One time the Bible says they left the box at somebody's house and his corn grew higher than his roof and his sheep had quintuplets. (laughs) If you got the box, man, good things happen. You get the picture? You get the picture now? David and his loyal supporters are packing up. They're leaving Jerusalem. There's a quick departure, which means they have to leave things behind, but they're not going to leave that box. They may leave their wife and children behind, but they're not leaving that box. So they load it onto the wagon. They're hauling this thing off. They get to the river. They set it down. The priests start sacrificing. God help us. God spare us. God give King David's kingdom back to him in his rightful place. And suddenly David looks at all this and he says, stop it. Just put down the ark. Just put it down. Pack it up and send it back to Jerusalem where it belongs. And his his men, and they must have said, are you crazy? Why did David do that? But then you read... Because David, in that moment, realized he was doing it again. He was relating to God as the boss, trying to manipulate God. If I can just get that box, I'll have the power to take back my throne. And suddenly, in David's older age, he realized, this has never worked out well for me. And the Bible says that David said, take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eye, he'll he'll bring it back to me and let me see it in his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. Have you ever come to a point in your life where you've said that to your father? Have you ever said to God, God, I, I can't do this anymore. I can't try to manipulate you and get, I can't control my life. It's not, so God, do to me as it seems good to you. See, that's, that's why Jesus says when you approach God, if you don't approach him on these terms... You're never gonna get the peace and emotional stability that comes in a relationship with God as your father who has good intentions for you. You're gonna fight him on every move and when you fight him, he's gonna to have to discipline you and that's gonna set you back. I mean, some of you, God had a fantastic plan for you and he wanted to get you from here to here but you wouldn't go along his road so you just keep going on side roads and he's gotta keep shoving you back to the middle. You could have been where he wanted you years ago but it's never too late. If you just say to God, do to me whatever seems good to you. Now, this is not fatalism, folks. It's not saying whatever will be. case No, no. You keep God's word. You seek his wisdom. You live within his parameters. You do your best to do his will. But in the end of the day, you leave the final outcome up to him. Because our father, who art in heaven, your name is holy. You're... Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is nothing better for you than laying down the melancholy burden of belief that you know what is best. So what Jesus is doing, he's saying that when you pray, when you pray, if you pray these words, it will start to heal your perspective. He's trying to give you a spiritual whoo, OK, God. I'm good now. I'm just going to go and live my life and take everything that comes, trusting in the goodwill of the Father. And Jesus is saying that's the only way you're ever going to experience deep rest. The reason there is an epidemic of anxiety and depression and frustration in America is not because we don't have enough stuff. It's because we have too much and we're depending on those things and we've lost our dependence on God. Adoration. Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Acceptance, your will be done. You run the universe. Now third, quickly, then I'm going to finish. Notice there's a lot of stuff that happens before we ever get to ask anything. (laughs) Have you noticed that? We've adored God. We've admitted that he's large and in charge. We've said, do to me as it seems good to you. And finally, we get to ask. And notice the three ask. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. Deliver us from evil. Now, we're going to talk more in detail about the last two, but give us this day, our daily bread is not so much a request as it is an it admission? So part of prayer as you pray to God is just the admission that everything you have is a gift from God. If you don't come to God with that kind of attitude, then there's going to be, Hey, wait a minute, God, I've, you know, I do deserve these things because I've been good. I've earned this. You're still relating to God as a boss. But if you come with the attitude, God, everything I have is a gift from you. My kids, my wife, my job. It may not be the job I want, but at least I've got food on the table and a roof over my head. When you relate to God as a father instead of a boss, there's going to be three things evident in your life. Number one, you're going to live a life of gratitude. Number two, you're going to focus more on what you have than focusing on what you don't have. And number three, you become extremely generous. Why? Because if you relate to God as father and you're his child, it's only a matter of time before you're going to come just like him. You spend enough time with somebody, you're going to become just like them. You spend enough time with God, the, the posture of your life will be generosity. If it's not, you're still relating to God as a boss. If you're still trying to control your own life, you're still relating to God as a boss. If you still think you can manipulate and coerce God and it's all about you, you're still relating to God as a boss. But when he's your father, you trust his goodwill you see that everything you've got is a gift from a loving father of staggering generosity. Can I ask you something? Who is praising God for your generosity? Who is pra- who who have you been so generous to they're praising God that they're able to survive to live because of your kindness because you've become like your father. <sighs> See, if you're not a generous person, it's because you're still relating to God as boss. You're just trying to get as much from him as you can. But if you're relating to God as father, generosity. Greed always surrenders to generosity at the point of true conversion. Adoration, acceptance, and asking. Then here's how we're going to end. Acknowledging the evil status quo. Now, I can't wait to preach an entire message on this, but here's what Jesus is doing in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, you're high and above your vantage point. Your kingdom come. Hallowed be your name, you're holy. Your decisions are pure and righteous because we don't see what you see. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. We acknowledge everything comes from you. But then he has this line, deliver us from evil. And what Jesus is trying to remind you of is that, in this prayer, you're not merely acknowledging that God is large and in charge. You're also acknowledging something else that is very difficult for people to grapple with. You're acknowledging that there's such a thing as evil, a prince of the power of the air who is trying to destroy you. Carl Barth said, when you pray, you are rebelling against the evil disorder of the world. But notice this prayer is couched in your kingdom come, your will be done. So what Jesus is trying to help you understand when you come to God, acknowledge, yes, this world is in bad shape. And some people get angry at that because they say, why doesn't God fix it? And the point of the scripture is that he is, he's redeeming and restoring everything to himself, but he's doing it through love, not force, which means there's going to be injustice for a time. Now, any of you in the room who've ever been to court, unfortunately have experienced injustice. I've got a friend named Donnie who's in Australia. He had a car accident a few years ago and it injured his back to such a degree that he couldn't work. He lost his house. He lost everything. And I kept trying to ask him, well, didn't the courts understand? (laughs) And Donnie finally stopped me and said, well, Pastor Jeff, I understand your questions now. You think there's justice in the world. Oh, if you're looking for justice, you're in the wrong world. It's whoever has the most money and the most expensive lawyers. That's who gets justice. Sad, isn't it? But the world we live in is not the one God created. It's the one we've made for ourselves by the pursuit of money and power. Stop blaming God. Look in the mirror. It's the world we've made. And in the Lord's Prayer, it is important that we acknowledge that this is a world of injustice, racism, corruption. But it's not the way God created it. But God is restoring it. We're supposed to remind ourselves that this is not the kingdom, but the kingdom is coming. That this is not the city of God, but the city of God is coming. This is not the new Jerusalem, but the new Jerusalem is coming. Because that's the only way you're going to be able to survive this world. Is to know that it's not going to last. That's the only way Jesus was able to survive what God called him to do. Now stay with me, okay? If you ever notice that Jesus prayed parts of the Lord's Prayer on two occasions. One was in the garden and the other was on the cross. In the garden, he said, what? Not my will, but yours be done. So here he is facing the most difficult trial of his life and he's able to say to God, God, okay, I want this cup to pass, but not my will, but yours be done. Why does he pray that? Because he trusts in the good will of the Father. He calls God Father three times in that passage. Okay, God, Father. Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He knew what was on the side. He knew the Father would keep his word on the other side. Then there's another time he prayed. When he's on the cross, he said what? Father, forgive them. Now, the only part of the Lord's prayer Jesus cannot pray is Father, forgive us our debts because he had none. So when he says to the Father, Father, forgive them, what is, in effect, what is Jesus doing? Because the only way the Father can forgive them is what? If Jesus gives his life. So when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, what's he, what's he? he's actually saying, okay, God, I get it. Take my life so that they can go free. The only way you can do that is if you've related to God, not as a boss, who gives you instructions to check off the list, but as a father who loves you, who is holy and pure, who has good intentions for you, whose kingdom is coming. And for the joy set before you on the other side, you will be able to endure whatever a sovereign God asks of you. Because ultimately, you know, that it will be replaced to an infinitely greater degree. So I got some questions for you. And this is our 40,000 foot view. Here are the questions. Number one, is your life with God primarily public? If it is, you haven't met the Father. Number two, do you see your relationship with God as primarily this for that? Something inside you says, if I do this, God will do this. If that's you, you still haven't met the Father. Three, are you becoming more stable emotionally or less stable? Because the world will do a serious number to try to kill you. And if you're becoming less stable emotionally, it's because you're still relating to God as boss, not father. A boss ridicules and requires. A father loves, forgives, comforts. Four, are you becoming more angry with God or less angry? The more you get to know God as father, you know that his ways are not your ways and there's no way you could understand From God's vantage point, what is happening in your life or in the world? So you trust him for the joy on the other side. But if you're relating to him as boss, you're just getting more and more angry that your life is not turning out the way you thought it would. Five, are you becoming more grateful or less grateful? The older you get, are you becoming more and more grateful for what you have rather than concentrating on what you don't have? Then you're angry at the boss because he hasn't delivered. Six, is your heart hardening toward people or softening toward people? This is a telltale sign. If you don't know God as Father, you're just going to hate people more and more because they're the ones taking from you what you think you deserve. (laughs) But if you love God, your heart is actually softening toward people because you know you're not really any better than they are. And if you had the opportunity, you'd take from them what you need, you think, to save your soul or your life. The Lord's Prayer, the 40,000-foot view, God is your Father, know Him and adore Him. Take a deep breath and trust that God will be God and let him have control of your life. See everything in life as a gift to you and know that no matter how bad things get, things are not moving toward death, they are moving toward life, the life that you've always wanted. But can I ask you something? Do you know him on this fatherhood level? You should know by now. I read an article in Go- from Google, uh, it was a blog actually, about a guy in Texas who walked us through his feelings as he saw his mother develop Alzheimer's. And man, it'll make you cry where he goes in to visit his mother every day. And most days she'll say, do I know you? For a son to hear that from his mother is so hard. Some days she'll say, "Did, did we go to school together? And he goes out into his car and he just weeps and weeps, comes back in, tries to gather himself and continue to talk in hopes that she may recognize him. You know what your greatest fear should be? That God will look at you and say, do I know you? Matthew 6 and 7 says, there will be many on the day. Say what? Lord, Lord, we've done all these things. And God said, I don't know you. There was never intimacy. The totality of your activity was a one hour and a half on a weekend. But there was no relationship Monday to Friday. There was no seeking, pursuing me. And that's why you're such a wreck. Because your soul is dying. What's the answer? Pray for a Jesus revelation. <laughs> you've got to get down on your knees and take me seriously. And you've got to beg God. God for you to fall in love with him, for him to show you something where you would fall in love and everything would change. Father, I want to thank you for the power of the Lord's prayer so much in so few words. I pray in Christ's name that you would be honored today. I pray that we would come to terms with who we are in you and I pray that would change everything. I pray for those of us who know that we have this kind of legalistic intellectual relationship with you, that our eyes would be open to that is not the way, that is not the way you desire to relate to us as a boss would to an employee, but as a father would to his own child. And I pray the ramifications of that would just penetrate our hearts and our souls and our minds and we would reach out in pursuit of that kind of relationship. I pray for anyone who is yet to discover the fatherhood of God, maybe it's because of unfortunate circumstances in their own life and all the baggage they've brought into this relationship. I pray for them that you would open their eyes to the truth of who you are through some experience, through some event where the veil is lifted and the space between heaven and earth becomes so thin. They began to see You. It's my prayer in Christ's name, Amen.
1: Thanks for joining me on Today with Jeff Vines. That may be the end of this message, but the good news is next time we will have another one in this series on the Lord's Prayer. Pastor Jeff will give us an overview of the second half of the Lord's Prayer and the meaning behind, forgive us our debts
0: so now we come to the part of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaching us how we are to relate to God, how we're to understand God when we come in prayer. And all of a sudden now we're told, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's hard.
1: Today with Jeff Vines. For more from Pastor Jeff, head to vision.org.au forward slash Jeff Vines.